welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and here with me in our studio, Cord Purgatory, is Pastor Amanda Sparrow and Anthony Alegria. And of course, we are with the Church of the Nazarene. Today, we're going to be talking about the mob in our world. We have to stand up to the social media mob in our world, and when we stand up to it, good things can happen. My rule for standing up to the mob basically boils down to this. Be choosy about the people you engage online. There's a need for us to have debate because so many people they've never been stood up to, they can just bulldoze over others. We must stand up to the mob, but we must be choosy about how we do it. We need a strong moral architecture around us that keeps us as individuals from becoming part of the mob, but instead gives us a proper trajectory where we can benefit the world around us. So be choosy about the people you engage online, but do not be afraid to engage them online. After we have that conversation, we're going to come back to talk about a boat, which is engineered to sink. Of course, it is a toy of the Titanic. But we're going to have a conversation about how within the church, we've taken things like the Babylonian exile, Noah's Ark, and we've kind of watered them down to the point where we're not actually teaching kids the the necessary in-depth transformation that can happen in suffering moments. Again, there's the darkest valleys that are going to come in life, but God gives us the rod and the staff to pull out of there. We've romanticized the idea of weakness and not actually embraced meekness. And of course, the concept of meekness is not this idea that you're just well, something like weak, but it's the idea that you actually have the power and authority to overcome the things in the world, but you are selective how you use that. You use that for the purposes of good. You're not somebody who's just a tyrant. So we're going to come back and we're going to have a talk about needing to be serious in the church, and then we'll wrap up our program. But stay with us. I hope you are enjoying our, our podcast. And if you have any questions or comments about things, you can send them to me on Twitter at Proctor, And we'll be back. One of the things that I'm frequently saying here at Kingdom of the Logos is that without discipline, the pathologies of the world will win. In other words, a pathology is something which is basically a, a bad logical progression. Again, pathos, bad, logos is sort of this orderly movement towards an end. And in our world, we really have this pathological division going on where people, they aren't talking to one another. There's not a lot of critical thinking. There's not a lot of debate. There's a lot of people who say they're in favor of, of debate and critical thinking, but they're really not. They claim that they're in interest of facts, but they're really not. But people are tribalizing. And that really is something that bothers me because I realize if our, our culture is going to endure in the long term, we cannot be breaking off into different tribes, but we've actually got to have a, a concise and, and unified goal. We actually have to know who we are as a people. Well, in the midst of this, there are a lot of people who are demanding some sort of political revolution. But the reality is, is that politics, well, first off, they're downstream from culture, and our culture is downstream from what our morals are as individuals. And as a pastor, I really want to draw people's attention to the fact that, well, first off, salvation does not come from government, but instead it comes from Christ. And we need to point people towards salvation in Christ and move away from this assumption that salvation comes from the government. Well, anyways, 
I really think that it's much more important that we can push our culture towards a spiritual revival than just a political revolution. Because I think political revolution, that is something, again, it's downstream from culture, politics is, and then not only is politics of the world or the political situation downstream, but also um, our culture, our mass culture as a whole, the pop culture around us, that is downstream from our morals. So we really do need a spiritual revival in our nation if we are to move away from the edge of chaos and bring our world back together. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this, the fact that spiritual revival is so much more important than political revolution? Well, I think before I kind of answer that question more directly, I think as we look at this, oftentimes we see that there is a connection uh, between our spirituality and our politics. Um, but I think what our biggest problem is to continue this analogy of downstream is we've kind of flipped the order, right? Yeah. We see that our politics are what gives us our morals and therefore will define our culture. So when we look around and we see things that are broken in our culture, we say, okay, then we, to fix that, let's, you know, go back to the basics and we go back to our politics. Yeah. And this is where the problem really becomes exasperated because as we go back to the politics, we find that it's not a good foundation. Um, the people we put our hope in often fail or corrupt. Uh, we can do all the research in the world and try to vote for the right person or vote, uh, vote for the right policies. And 10 years down the line, the policies don't work. The politicians aren't doing their job. And we, we, you know, so we're like, okay, let's just try harder. Let's research harder. You know, let's get more information out there. Let's make sure we're not believing in fake news. And that's, those things are important. Like, please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't do your research. I'm not saying don't fact check. But if we find that that's the only way or our only means to enact change, we're going to find that it's going to be very incomplete. Well, if I can step in for a second, <coughs> I just want to make sure that we're all on the same point here, because it sounds to me like you're saying the methodology is backwards. Yes. And, and I think that is exactly true. Anthony, is that, that what you're hearing too? Just so I want everybody, the audience and all of us to realize this. The methodology of politics first is backwards. Yeah, of course. Um... I do think it was an interesting analysis to make that, uh, you know, it starts with our morals and then later on downstream, our politics manifest. But um, as Amanda interestingly pointed out, it's kind of switched. And so I think that that's kind of, kind of interesting. It's kind of like art. You know, art imitates life, but then eventually life imitates art and people start to base reality off of the once um, approach of reality or maybe sometimes fantasy. And I think that that is actually a very good um, analysis of what's taking place. Well, um, we'll go ahead, Amanda. I have well, something I'll throw in okay, here Okay, well, I just think in continuing with that, when we put our morals, and we have discussed a thousand times, you know, our morals are not something that we've come up with. They're not, again, they're not something even our culture comes up with. It. We find wisdom uh, in the nature and the life of God. And as we are in right relationship with our God, we find how to be right in right relationship with others. And so eventually that does lead us to voting, uh, leads us how to be good citizens in whatever country. Um, most of our, our people are from the United States, most of our viewers, but whatever country we find ourselves, whatever political climate we may find ourselves, our morals do help dictate. But I think sometimes then we go even a little bit too far with that and we say, well, because, you know, God has inspired me to vote a certain way, God must be on the side of my political party. And again, we've then kind of um, subverted the, the right order of how things need to be. And so we have to be careful 
And when we look in social media, and I think that's really the most difficult thing, is sometimes we can join in with the mob and not realize it. Uh, as we're screaming, as we're crying for social change, some very destructive and horrible things are happening in our world, and we're trying to find out the best way uh, to help people, to not just help one person, but to systematically help people. And then we f look around and we're like, oh no, I've, I've joined the mob. Like, all I'm doing is more screaming. Um, all I'm calling for is kind of more of these knee-jerk reactions. I'm not being a part of something that's life-lasting transformation. Yeah. So, and I think that's why continual repentance, continual observation, continual communion with God, with the, the faith community, with the church, um, becomes so important because we can hold each other accountable. And, and when we get out of whack, we can be like, okay, what are, is our focus? Is our focus to save people holistically, mind, body, soul? Um, are we just trying to make ourselves feel good for a moment because there's a sad picture on our Facebook feed? Right. And I think you're exactly right, Amanda. <laughs> the fact that, it, well, first off, it's easy to become part of the mob. And it's easy to tell where you're at because so many people in our world have tried to confuse what is, is good and bad. And so many people, they know that people will have moral convictions about things and they use that really against people. They'll say, well, if people have a conviction about this particular issue and I'm a politician, I can then basically take the Lord's name in vain and say, well, I'm on, on God's side. This, if you're voting for me, you're voting for, for God, basically. And that's really a corrupt thing. It's a very manipulative thing. And again, it's, it's a form of idolatry and taking the Lord's name in vain that just leads to chaos. It doesn't lead to a better future when people start putting too much investment in politicians and they forget to actually build the moral fabric in the world around them. Again, I don't just use the language of moral fabric or moral foundation, but often I'm talking about moral architecture with walls and things that come up around you, archways to, to walk through, windows to look through. Our morality that we have as individuals must be something that we, we really negotiate with on a daily basis. Whenever we encounter a new situation, we should have morals that are in our lives that say, well, how are we going to deal with this? Because again, that's how we stop being knee-jerk reaction people, but we actually have a long-term trajectory on what we can do in life because we're morally based. We have an idea of what salvation looks like. Again, it comes from Christ. We have an idea that the kingdom of God, it's not just a, a worldly jurisdiction, but at the same time, when we say that it's not a worldly jurisdiction, we shouldn't blur the lines with that with worldly kingdoms and start saying, well, this kingdom must be the kingdom of God or something to that effect. We don't need to idolize things which should not be idolized. And that's something which really plays a lot of tricks on people. Well, the next thing that I want us to talk about is this idea of the mob. Because the mob, if we look at our culture and we're being honest, it really is the most powerful force within our culture. And that doesn't mean that's the most powerful thing ever, though. Just because it's the most powerful force within our culture, there is something which transcends culture. There's something which existed before our culture, and it will exist long afterwards. And of course, that's the transforming power of Christ. And we really should look not towards just political revolution. And instead, we should remember that spiritual revival is the key to transforming our world around us. So I want to pose this question to the two of you while we're here about how we can fight back against the mob. Um, what are some ideas you have, all have about pushing back against the mob and actually being a positive influence in the world around us? I know when I look at the world and I get online, again, people, they, they kind of pretend like they're having a debate, but it's really more of a screaming match. People aren't face-to-face. 
you can't really read someone's tone when you're online. You can't tell if the two of you are getting along and dis or disagreeing. And there's really not a lot of reason and rationality. And the mob just seems to be consuming everything in its path because that's generally what mobs do. They may start off having an end goal, but anything that really gets in the way of the mob gets sucked up and destroyed with it. So what do you, you all think when we're challenged how to stand up to the mob? I think uh, an important thing for all of us to remember, especially in social media and, and handling the mob and on social media, is knowing when to speak or when to post and when not to. And what I mean by that is, again, you know, all this that we're doing is on social media. We have a, a prayer challenge that's going on through through social media, and those can be very helpful things but if we do them under the wrong circumstances or if we're doing it kind of just to fight back or, or be mean back which is not what we're doing but for people as they're arguing if they do that again they're just being one more voice that's screaming into the void and so we have to know when is it appropriate we have to be able to judge a conversation so maybe we're a third party that gets kind of roped in knowing when to leave uh yeah. the conversation and knowing that this is not an actual helpful discussion or debate, this is just a screaming match, and so there's not going to be anything. But also, I think then the at times the church fails. It's been so used to kind of keeping quiet and binding its time that it's failed to realize it does have a voice that it needs to use. And yeah. so we we don't always use the best wisdom on when to speak and when not to speak. But I think if we can take the time to just step back, to look, to listen... And then decide, okay, is this something I need to talk about? And then how do I do it? Or is this something that just needs to be left alone and it will die down? And so there has to be, again, this, this is evaluation and reevaluation of this process. But ultimately, I think our intention and our aim is going to help guide us. And then also, but even good intention sometimes can do bad things. So we have to make sure that the medium we're using is still appropriate and at times it, it really can be helpful to step back and then people can look at that and say you know what they're not joining the screaming match why yeah and then they can listen to what the content the essence of what is actually being said and hear a story um hear a language that is is quite different even if the words may be similar that the meanings behind them take on new life because they're not found in this political revolution but they're found in this transformation that does um, impact every part of their lives um, but is going to do it holistically and long term well i actually have a because we have to stand up to the mob mm -hmm. it's unbelievably powerful to stand up to the mob but you have to be wise about it so it doesn't turn into a screaming match i have a little bit of a formula that i want to present but before i i bias and skew anthony's thoughts i want to see what anthony's thoughts are on standing up to the mob Okay, well... If um, there are any, which I'm sure there are. <laughs> here, are here are my thoughts on it. I think that um, the solution is both beautiful and perhaps in part also, I can't find a better word, but maybe a little depressing because I don't think that there are very many top-bottom solutions that you can take. I don't think that there's a lot of, you know, we as this group can do this, like, for instance, you know, try to approach the political system or... Um, take some other bureaucratical approach, some type of program, whatever. We can institute this thing, and that can be what will attack and change the mob mentality and show people to a better path. Um, I don't think that there are a lot of solutions like that. I think that there are 
there's a much better um, opportunity on the individual level, which this is the part that makes it beautiful. I really do think that um, individuals have the power and ability to affect and change one another's lives. That is beautiful. It's also slightly depressing because that also means that it's going to take time, a lot of time, actually, and a lot of effort on um, the individuals involved, on both yeah. sides, really, to change uh, things like mob mentality. I mean, like, you're literally, not only are you perhaps trying to change someone's mind, but you're trying to change the very, like, manner in which they think. Yeah. You know, you're detaching them from their uh, normal metho methodology. So I think that um, we as individuals who are aware of mob mentality, we need to question ourselves to see what mob we're a part of. Hopefully we're not part of one. And, well, um, if I can slip in there, because there's a few things I want to point in before we get too far from it. There is a need to make distinctions. Again, you can have war with vices, but peace with individuals. But I don't want us to spend too much time where we, we take the gray area of saying, well, where am I at now? And let the gray area of not knowing where we're at now pull over to places where we, we have black and white. Because what happens when you stake your flag in the gray area, you will take that gray to areas where there is no gray, as opposed to staking your flag somewhere where there's orthodoxy and then pulling orthodoxy to the gray areas. And you might say, what in the world are you talking about, preacher? Here's how we stand up to the mob. The mob often works by pointing out places where there is gray area. They They'd be like, oh, well, how do you feel about this issue? Is this kindness? And they try to brand things a certain way. Here's my rules that I have enacted personally, and I want to encourage you all to as well. And I alluded to this earlier. I look online and I see people with some ridiculous stuff. I only engage people that I personally know and, and have a, some sort of personal connection to. Only engage people that you, you really care about. And yes, you might say, well, as a Christian, you're supposed to care about everyone. But be choosy about who you engage. Engage people that you have a personal connection with and you actually care about. The closer you can have your discussions, the more you can localize it, the better, because there's more of an investment there. But only start these conversations, which may be very much a, a debate, with people that you really care about. But don't be afraid to go out into the debate stage, because again, one of the reasons why we found ourselves in the culture so much is because people have tribalized and they've said, well, I'm just going to be in my echo chamber instead of going out to the debate. The mob can be pushed back. In, recently, in recent months, there was a university in Colorado where they weren't going to allow a, a girl to speak at graduation because she was going to reference Jesus and some scripture. There was a lawyer who wrote a letter to the school. It was just a few sentence thing and said, look, you're breaching the First Amendment. Um, we may file a lawsuit, and the school immediately turned around and said, oh, no, there was a mistake. You can go ahead and speak and talk about Jesus. It doesn't actually take that much to stand up to the mob to change its direction. And we have to stand up to the mob. We really do. If we look throughout history, if you don't stand up to the mob, bad things happen. Sometimes you stand up to the mob and you become a martyr. It's just an unfortunate part of history. We have to stand up to the mob, but we must be wise about doing it. Be choosy where you do it. Amanda pointed this out. Make sure you're not just getting in a screaming match. Be morally based. Don't just be emotionally based, but say, what are my ethics in life? What has Christ taught me? What are Christian virtues in our life? Take those, and that is the starting point. Stake your flag in orthodoxy and in Christian virtue, and then go out into the world. Stand up to the mob. Well, anyways, we're going to wrap up this conversation. We'll be back to talk about balancing sort of the 
softer things in life with the more serious issues in life. We're going to talk about VBSs and how a lot of times we water down stuff for kids, and we'll be back to have that conversation in a moment. driving along I was on my way to the church building and I went past this other church who had some VBS posters outside their building and they were about Babylon that was the name of their VBS it was just these big green letters that were sort of written in a crazy font that must be appealing to kids and it just said Babylon and had like a lion on it and some kids looking happy I know it's like oh goody like (laughs) yeah I was driving by and I seen this and I was like yeah oh goody Babylon nothing says fun like Half of a a century in what is basically purgatory. I mean, literally, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to take the people of God off to captivity, they're able to burn like bricks and and mortar. Like, that's a feat. When we were children, we used to joke about out in the country where we lived that we had neighbors that would be able to do this unreasonable task of burning a car all the way down to, like, nothing. Like, they would be able to burn metal and, and tires. But in all honesty, as we look at stuff like Babylon, it does bring us to the question of saying, you know, what is an appropriate way of understanding some of the stuff in our past? Or do we just sort of poke fun at it and move along? Amanda, what were your thoughts when you first seen the Babylon picture? And for those of you listening to the podcast, we actually do have a a picture of some of the artwork from this Babylon VBS. It's basically got a lion in there, some kids, some architecture behind it. And the kids look really happy to be there. Amanda, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, yeah, so in the picture also the lion, he's kind of a cartoonish lion, but he's looking really smug. Um, Like, he is seriously contemplating the fact that uh, eventually somebody will be fed to him. He's quite ecstatic (laughs) about that idea. Yeah. uh, Which just, like, continues this this odd trend of why we kind of make light. Uh, We kind of sugarcoat certain things. Um, and, And like you said, Babylon exile, all those things that happened in the, in the history of, of Israel, they weren't fun things. Um, I'm not sure that they would ever look at this and be like, yeah, let's make this into a vacation Bible school where you can, you know, um, I don't know, how would you do exile crafts and, and snacks and, the, you know, games? Maybe you have to run away from the lions, um, which is actually quite terrifying. Yeah, um, it's, Not something it's to really be giggling terrifying. about. Yeah, it would probably look more like a Jurassic Park <laughs> IRL um, VBS than there we give go. it credit for. But in all honesty, the reason why I want us to talk about this is in our world, people have this weird thing where if they want to talk about history, they, they kind of have to reframe it in a certain way. Um, largely throughout our culture, we find now that history seems to be either off limits or people don't want to be honest about things. But when it really comes to tragedies of the past, and we want to teach our kids about tragedies, we always have sort of a difficult time balancing between the the harsh reality of of things in the past and sort of an honest reality about that. Um, So balancing it in sort of a hard way and then sort of a soft way. But with VBSs like Babylon, and again, I'm not beating up on the church for doing this. Uh, I actually am glad that they're doing things like VBS. You seem to see that less and less nowadays. But as a whole, we look at our world around and people are always making light of things. Here, I've got a model of the Titanic uh, that you can see. And this is something else that people have really made light of. And I think it's a bit of a of a light way of saying that we've romanticized the Titanic, perhaps. Best children's toy ever. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. so this particular uh, toy of the Titanic, because that's what it is, is actually one that has a lot of engineering feet in it. Uh, if you look at it, those of you who are watching the video, not just the, the podcast, 
So it's like a, a little scale model of the Titanic. It has a lever on the bottom of it. When you move it there, it actually opens up a hole in the side of the hull of the ship up towards the, the bow section. And if you put this in water, it'll actually start to sink in the front and it will rise up to a place and there's a weight and a lever inside there that will cause the ship to break apart. The bow section will sink first, the stern will sit there for a second, and then the stern will also go under. Oh so my like gosh, that's kind of graphic. <laughs> it is graphic, and it's a children's story. And it's... Someone took time to think through that and be like, yes, this is what children want to have fun with when they play in, in, their, um, in their bathtub. It's the destruction of thousands of lives. Yeah, and this is really, I mean, it's kind of neat, but yeah, man, he's bringing up a good point. Like I was about to say, it is kind of impressive, but still it's like, that's not something, you know, you want your kid to play with. Like, it <laughs> is impressive, and we're going to put it in water, and we're going to film it as it sinks, so you can see it. It really does work. It was actually a successful uh, piece of engineering. While people were unsuccessful at engineering an <laughs> unsinkable ship, we have been very good at designing sinkable ships, even to go out of our way and purposefully do that. Let's examine the sinking model of the Titanic. While the ocean liner itself was intended to be unsinkable, this model is designed to deliberately sink. As you can see, the bow starts to tilt under, the stern detaches, and the two halves sink independently. I think one of the reasons that we are so captivated with the Titanic is that it's a microcosm of life. Suffering is intrinsic to the human condition. Questions of our mortality loom deep within our mind, and we ponder how far we can progress on life's journey before the cold hands of death draw near. For the passengers of the RMS Titanic, the luxuries of today, the elaborate mysteries of the future, and the icy truth of human tragedy were all condensed into a few moments. As a pastor, I wonder what message I would preach in this moment of fatal duress. Reverend John Harper died in the tragedy spending his last moments leading others to Christ, to ensure that those lost to this earth would be caught by the hands of Christ. His message was simple, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The meaning of salvation was clear at this point. Tragedy is guaranteed on this earth. However, there is eternal life in the kingdom of God. We have romanticized the tragedy of the Titanic. We even make models of the tragedy so that we can recreate the horror with our own hands. It truly is a microcosm of our own lives. The tragedy reminds us that the fleeting ambitions and luxuries we have now are juxtaposed by the immovable icy horrors that lurk just a moment down life's journey. But anyways, back to the whole Babylon thing. And we see this throughout the Old Testament in particular. Um, you don't see a lot of people making VBS programs out of, like, the amphitheater. Like, have fun, <laughs> going to be martyred. Next up, we have medieval torture and the comb. Um, yeah, we don't sugarcoat a lot of things from church history if they're not explicitly in Scripture. But the things that are in Scripture, people a lot of times, they do want to sugarcoat it. You see this with Noah's Ark. Uh, we've got a picture of, like, a stock photo Noah's Ark bedroom suite for you to look at. A lot of times, people really do take tragedies and they're like, well, there's animals in there, sort of Daniel's in the, the den with lions. It's great. It's a, it's a man with his kitty cats. But realistically, you're like, no, actually, this is, is quite bad. 
But let's talk about Exile for a bit, because Exile is actually something which, sort of like the Titanic, I feel like people have romanticized a bit, and they haven't had good follow-through in helping people work through situations in their life where they are suffering, where there are things which make people feel like they're in some sort of personal exile. Amanda, as we were starting this conversation and getting prepared for the podcast, you were talking about how a lot of kids who may be going to something like a Babylonian uh, VBS, they may actually have some sort of suffering in their life and they can relate to exile more than people would give them credit for. Well, yeah, I think it wouldn't take us very long to look at our communities and see where often children are victims of some very heinous situations. And the church should be a place that, yes, there's joy and there's fun and excitement and they can escape from that. But we have a responsibility to articulate to them that in the midst of suffering, God is there. God's not only in the fun times when we get to, you know, eat the, the silly crafts or make the the funny um, uh, crafts or, you know, and things like that. But it that God is there in those hard times and those difficult situations and so exile becomes this fantastic part of our scripture to say, look at this. The people of God made some bad choices. It affected not only them, but their children and, and generations after them. And when they did that, they faced some horrible circumstances. And yet even in the midst when they were far away from their temple, far away from their traditions, from where they had found, where they thought they had found uh, power and acceptance, um, even far away from all that, God was still present with them. And so when we kind of sugarcoat these things, when we make them really silly, and it's, again, sometimes it's okay to be silly, but when that's all it is, we miss out on a great opportunity to speak to not only children, but our, our everyone, to our whole communities, about the full scope of what exile really meant and what it can mean for the church today. Absolutely, which is one of the reasons why I think youth group culture from when particularly myself and Amanda were younger, has played a role in people not staying in the church. When people were young, they went to really a youth group that was like, oh, if, you'll, if you can get 20 people to come to, to church, the, the youth pastor will eat a goldfish or something like that, where it's like super silly. And it teaches people that the reason of going to church is connected somehow with silliness, that the church doesn't actually have answers for the, the deeper things in life. And it really gives credence to this secular assumption in the world that the church is just this shallow thing that, that makes people feel better about the world. It kind of reduces things down to a Joel Osteen level. But the church must be deeper than that. We must say, look, there's bad stuff in the past. And even in exile, we need to have good follow through and say there's transformation out of that and give kids the, the ability to say, look, there's suffering, but the transformation of Christ doesn't just leave you there. It's one thing to be in a moment of weakness or a moment of, of pain, but the transformation of Christ is to come to you and pull you out of that and move you towards something better. Anthony, what are your thoughts on this? Um, one other thing that I've noticed that it causes as well, the goofy youth groups and stuff like that, is that it doesn't prepare people to move out of youth group eventually. Mm -hmm. um, some of my uh, personal friends that I grew up with, um, I talk to them and you know try to tell them about attending fellowship and stuff like that and seeking fellowship rather and you know maybe attending church or something and then a lot of times they'll say like well it's just weird because i don't know anybody in the youth group anymore and stuff like that and it's like man we're kind of adults now you know we can go to classes that are not youth group and other things but it leaves it detached so that then it's like you know you can't really go to church in a regular atmosphere that's not in that same youth group type setting and platform you know it kind of ruins it 
and um, it leaves it to where that's that's um, what should be expected whenever it's not. And on top of that, it we have got a problem in the church where people expect everything to be fragmented out. And people are like, well, this age group intermingles with this age group, and we don't see a lot of people coming to have church together as sort of a, a monolithic group of people. And I think you're right, Anthony. It does lower people's expectations of what to do next. They they really don't have a, a follow-through with it. Amanda, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think you guys have kind of hit on everything, and there's this recognition that, yeah, you know, how we explain exile to children, we may use different words. We're going to use different examples than how maybe we would explain it to teenagers and different how we explain it to adults. But um, so there are times and there are moments where differentiation needs to take place. But ultimately, yes, we have to recognize there has to be connection. Um, if everyone is always fragmented out and, and never interacts, never creates those relationships or is never given an opportunity to cultivate and create those relationships, then we're left without some really good life skills. Yeah. And that's the other thing I think you, uh, Pastor Dylan, you kind of hinted at this is a lot of people see the church as this goofy place that only deals with these made up spiritual matters. And what we fail to see is the church it in Christianity is not so, an answer to a made up you know, fictional spiritual problem. It's a means of God's grace that affects every aspect of our life. And so in the church, if we are never given the opportunity to create those good life skills, to, to interact with people of different ages and thought processes and, um, you know, fill in blank here, but people who can maybe challenge us or compliment us or do both, um, if we never are given those opportunities, then we're going to fail to be holistic people when we go to our jobs, our schools, um, and even in communicating with friends and families. And so the church really becomes this great place if it's done right um, for there to be growth and development. But then also on the flip side of it, when the church fails, it, it is quite detrimental, uh, not just to that specific community, but to the community at large. Well, this has brought up another thing in my mind. <laughs> we have to teach our children that being a part of the church, being a part of the kingdom of God is not just being a part of a narrative. We're in this world where everybody loves to talk about narrative. I know Anthony says if he hears anybody at uh, the university where he goes, use the word narrative one more time, he's going <laughs> to explode. I know I was like that too when I was there in undergrad. But my point is this, there's a lot of people who have this assumption that, oh, everybody's got their own narrative and how you view the world is just a narrative. And a lot of people who I believe are sincere Christians, but they're in the church and they had this assumption that the kingdom of God is just another narrative in the world. They're kind of universalists that say, you know, maybe you're from a Hindu culture and that's your, your sort of truth that you have. And they don't have this real understanding that, no, the kingdom of God is not just another narrative in the world that you can insert yourself into, but it's actually a reality. And it's a reality that doesn't just deal with made up problems, but it's a reality that comes into every aspect of your life and can bring transformation for you. Again, I, I think it's great places doing VBS, but we have to be able to balance sort of the, the fun, goofy, green letter side of life with the, hey, when bad stuff happens, when real issues come into your life, again, maybe some of these kids are at home, they've got like a domestic situation at home. The church is there for those situations too. It's there for the real things. Anthony? Um, I was just going to say, this is kind of a side topic, but I think it's interesting that the very language that's often associated with the use of narrative also. Um, a lot of times it's words like imagine and um, I mean just like imagine and narrative in themselves, they both imply fantasy. Yeah. They well, both 
I don't think the word narrative itself is bad. I think it's like so many words in our culture, they've been corrupted by people who have really wanted to abuse them. I think one of the best programs we've ever put together is the one on nominalism. And if you haven't seen that, I encourage you to go back, find the one on nominalism. It's hands down one of the most entertaining and educational programs we put together. But nominalism is this idea that you can call something a thing and therefore it is that thing. There's no reality connected to it. Um, right now, Amanda, not, I don't think anyone can see this, but the way the cameras are, but the church history dog has actually been in her lap this whole time we've been talking. He's an amazingly good dog. But the idea with nominalism is like, you can say, well, that dog over there, well, he's really a cat. He was only a dog to start with because you called him a dog. And if we call him a cat, therefore he becomes a cat. Our language in the world around us has been corrupted by people who really have this nominalistic way of thinking that if I can just call something a thing, it becomes that thing. Well, with things like talking about narratives, our assumptions about the world really have started to fragment and crack away. Anyways, for time purposes, we've got to start wrapping this up. But the Babylonian thing, again, it's great to have VBS and great to have fun. But we just have to remember to balance the light things in life with these serious and heavy things in life. Um, it's cute and fuzzy to say, oh, look, we're going to go pet the lion. <laughs> but in reality, if you go pet a lion, it's probably not going to be so pretty. Then the real life lion probably will not be as smug as the one in this banner, though he might be. I don't know. Lions can be pretty smug, but they can also tear your flesh apart. So They are the, the king of the jungle that aren't actually in the jungle. So. <laughs> yes, that is true. Today, we make our pilgrimage, not to a place of sophistry or fake news, but to a place where the divine gift of critical thinking is embraced. Thank you for joining us here at Court Purgatory. Uh, we at Kingdom of the Lagos hope that you enjoyed the program. If you did enjoy the program, please share and like all of it and uh, find us in all our different mediums uh, through Facebook, uh, Twitter, and even on Tumblr, and then, of course, all the different podcasting sites. Uh, may God bless you, and you have a good day.